I was working through this text this week, and I assure you, I get beat up a lot more than you do on Sunday morning. When I first thought about it, I said, well, you know, this is good, it sounds Christian, the idea of joy and so forth, but occasionally I have to do a little introspection, if you will, introspection, should I say, if I will, and pray and examine my own heart, and, and um, I don't know if I would really characterize myself as an as a, um, overly joyous person. So it's great conviction because Christ here in this text said, well, I want my joy, that is the joy that Christ has, to be fulfilled in his disciples. So that's a challenging thought and caused me to look into it and really ask my own heart. I understand joy can be expressed in various ways and so we're not going to measure each other by the other person. Some people, you may look at their appearance and think, well, this is naturally a really cheerful person. You look at me, you might think, well, he's pretty serious and sober and, and uh, maybe sour. But nevertheless, uh, I do have uh, times of great joy, and, but yet um, the, the joy of Christ completed or filled in me um, well, I'm a bit short of that. It is true that every believer will have a fullness of joy in the eternal state. That's what we have to look forward to. 1611 of Psalms, in his presence is what? The very fullness of, of this joy. So we can look forward to an eternal bliss, if you will, in a glorified state in which we'll not only express the fullness of joy, but we'll also have the capacity to, to receive it, right? Because it can be difficult. It can be a bit overwhelming in this idea of fullness. And I think that's what uh, the eternal uh, state is going to, to look like. We'll have the capacity to experience and receive joy and express it in, in far more than we can ever imagine. Whatever the most joyful occasion or circumstance you might remember in your mind, well, the eternal state before God far outweighs that, such that that won't even be a way to measure what that would be like. But in our text in verse 13, and I'm going to challenge you to, to consider it this morning, Jesus is praying for the now, not the not yet, right? He's praying for something for his disciples after his departure. This is his part of his farewell address, and it concludes with this high priestly prayer on the behalf of his people. We've considered Jesus' prayer that he prays for his disciples, that they would be manifest in their life as he departs, and they remain. He prayed, as we've already talked about, that well, the glory of Christ would be manifested in their life, that they would exemplify a union with Christ, a union with God, which would overflow into their unity with one another, true communion in the fellowship of the saints. Christ prayed that they would be protected, particularly from the evil one and, and from those destructive forces that would bring about destruction and damnation. We've talked about all of that. But along that line, in verse 13, he prays for joy. He prays that joy would be fulfilled in the lives of his disciples. 
And I'd argue that joy then, if thinking about it in that tone, so forced to do so and looking at this text, that it is an essential element to Christianity. Christ has prayed for it. It is the essential element. And it is fundamentally characteristic of those that are in Christ. The source of such joy, obviously, is in Christ. And the expression of it is the outworking of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's what we're talking about. Not just joy in general, but specifically the joy that Christ prayed for his disciples, the joy that is expressed through the outworking of the Holy Spirit. We call this outworking of the Holy Spirit that results in joy as the fruit of the Spirit. We've heard of that before. We understand that. Galatians 5.22, for example, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And then the next word, joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't think that's a list of everything. And I don't think it's a list of individual things per se. It is not the multiple fruit, if you will, but a multifaceted fruit. That is, what God works out in the life of the believer isn't just, oh, well, that one has the gift of joy. This one has the gift of patience. That one, the self-control. No, we have all of them. And that's what the fruit looks like. If you looked at it, it's multicolored, if you will. It's, it's varied. It has all of those aspects. We're going to hone in on one, and that is joy. Not excluding the others, it's just a focus on joy today, here. I think this analogy of fruit is very helpful for us to think about the working of Christ in your heart, and the working of the Holy Spirit in expressing Christ in you, the hope of glory, fruit is a great analogy. Because fruit, as it's produced, we might think of coming from a tree, an apple tree, that fruit is, is produced because of the, what? Essentially the nature of the tree itself. That tree produces apples. A Christian is going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. You get it. Goodness, kindness, those kinds of things. It's multifaceted. And also in this analogy of the fruit, by the way, and you can't push all of this too far, but there might be seasons in which it's more noticeable more abundant than others, if you will. Fruitful seasons. There are, there are times in which it's on greater display, but it's essentially always there because of the nature of the tree and the work of life through that um, tree. If we'll, um, let's see, you're in 17. You can flip back to 15 if you want, but we, and we're going to look at chapter 15 a little bit later on, but it's not far. But it, you remember, we went through this already. Here, the analogy of a vine, something that produces fruit. Jesus would say in 15.1, I am the, what, true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Israel was to be the vine, but they were not true. Christ is true. 
and he's emphasizing that. Then he mentions the Father is the sovereign God, the vine dresser, the one who uh, coordinates everything and does things for the, for the uh, good pleasure of his will. And what, what is he doing? Verse 2, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he, he takes away. That is, those that are claimed to be in Christ and don't have any fruit, evidence of it, any expression of it in their life, they're taken away, taken away in judgment, right? So that's a false claim. But the true claim, but and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may what? Bear more fruit. So God is working in the life in a pruning aspect there is something going on, but in his work in your life, the, the work and the purpose of these various things in your life is so that you'll what? You'll bear more fruit. And again, our focus of that is the fruit of joy. We'll return to this text in a minute, uh, in, in, just, in just a bit. The whole point is God is actively engaged in this fruit bearing in your life and the things that are brought about in your life, there to produce more fruit. Joy. Joy for the believer, then, as we focus on that aspect of the fruit, is an expression of the fruit of the Spirit. It isn't an option. In fact, Paul would command the church to be joyful. So, on Paul's word, (laughs) inspired by the Holy Spirit, here's what I'm going to command myself (laughs) this week and you, and that is be joyful. He would say it this way to the church of Philippi, you remember, 4-4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Both of those are com- is imperative, and it's repeated. You know why? Because you can say, okay, church, rejoice. Have joy. Again, I say have joy. Because the cares of this world, or whatever circumstances in life, may tend to rob you from what you have in Christ. It is Christ's prayer that your joy would overflow. That you, in whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, would have this deep, abiding joy of Christ. This is part of his high priestly prayer. And so here we'll return back to John 17 and verse 9, just because I like to read it in the context in which it's given rather than just isolated. We're going to focus just on 13, but I'm going to seed it in its context as we begin because I like to see it in that format as Christ is praying. Notice verse 9 of chapter 17. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They're yours, and all... Mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. And they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. 
I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they're not of this world, even as I am not of this world, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come before you now through Jesus Christ, our Lord, reminding ourselves of the prayer that he prayed for his disciples on this day prior to the sacrifice on the cross. And pray we would lift it high, meditate on these words, and think deeply about them. And prayer for his people to be full of joy in this very life itself, in this world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, back to our focus verse, which is verse 13. Notice the phrase, my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's what we're ultimately focusing on. And two questions come immediately to my mind. There's many, but two. One, what is the nature of this joy that Christ calls my joy? What what exactly is it so that we're on the same page here, right? And the second question is really follow-up. Okay, Christ prays for this, but, you know, is there any interaction on my part in which this then, whatever this joy is, how, that it could be fulfilled in my life? Or, or do I just sit by and, and, and just idly by and allow it happen? Well, we probably know that's not the case, right? Experientially. So what can we do? We don't want artificial fruit stuck on the tree. We want fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Something real, something genuine. Something that's not produced by the flesh. I mean, you can do certain tricks to kind of trick your mind and make you a little happier. You can do all of that, but that's not what we're about. What we're about is something dynamic. The work of the Spirit, the outworking. And so what can we do or should we do in that part to help facilitate? And that's what we'll focus on this morning. Let's look at this first, this joy that he calls my joy fulfilled in him. If I were to have to define this, and this theology of joy would really transcend the time that we have available today, that's for sure. So um, I wrestled with this a bit. I think I can pack this in the best I can. I know I'm not going to answer all the questions. Don't intend to do so, but begin you on a certain trajectory to go look at the scriptures to see if any of this is so and to examine it for yourself. And if, if that is motivates you on, I've, I've succeeded to some degree. But if I were to try to think about my joy that Christ has here, how would I define it? Well, succinctly this way. The joy of Christ is a cheerful disposition of the heart 
that transcends the circumstances of life. Okay? A cheerful disposition of heart that transcends the circumstances of life. And, and by heart, I mean it's not just your emotional response, although I do think it, it does definitely include that, uh, but it, it primarily affects the mind. So both aspects. I mean, if you're, if, if you're mentally, you have this idea of joy, it, it will be expressed physically and emotionally. It's just part of it. This disposition, this cheerful disposition of gladness in your heart, it will result in great contentment. Read the epistle of joy, Philippians. And Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever condition I might find myself in, I am content. How can you be content in very difficult situations? Well, because you have the joy of Christ. So it is without regard to the situation in which you find yourselves in. And overall, it is, uh, another way to think of it would be the, the, a, a spirit of gladness, if you will, granted by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit being that immaterial part of you that has an inter-gladness, if you will, as a, as a descriptor, if you will, of the early church, Acts 2.42. Now at this point, I'm intrigued also by a concept that I've heard in various expressions of the theology of joy that I want to address I hope I don't step on too many toes. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I'll do my best. <laughs> there are people that then, when they think about this joy, and, and remember my definition, I basically was saying that it is a cheerful disposition of, of your heart, right? Um, but there's many good theologians and good writers that would try to make a distinction between joy and happiness. And if you're one, that's fine. I do not, and I'll explain why. But good people do. Some people suggest that happiness is just an external, fleeting joy, if you will, and it is only achievable on earth. Joy, on the other hand, I'm quoting from one commentary, is an inter internal, selfless, sacrificial, and spiritual connection with God. I think that distinction is too hard to make, and I'll explain. In fact, I was reading Oswald Chambers. Um, his devotions were issued post, uh, after he died, but nevertheless, in one of his, he has a very harsh statement concerning happiness. He says, joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. Well, I understand the motivation behind such expression. I just think making that sharp of a distinction is, is a bit much. There are some elements in which that's true, but these words have a happiness and joy have a semantic overlap of meaning. And this sharp distinction may not be helpful. In fact, I've 
done some further reading and many of the same people that might make that distinction in one place contradict themselves in another. And I'll just, I won't list them all, but I'll pick on my favorite uh, preacher and mentor, if you will, uh, John MacArthur. In one sermon, he, he said, happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based on some present circumstance. Happiness relates to happenings, I'm quoting. It's happenstance. On the other hand, when we talk about joy, we're not talking about something that's related to chance at all. We're talking about a deep down confidence that all is well, no matter what the circumstance, and that's very help. That is very different from happiness. In another sermon from Matthew chapter 5, that's all the blessed is the one, blessed. Some people translate that happy, by the way, including MacArthur, who said, happy are the merciful. So um, I'm not trying to call him out on that. I'm just saying, English words like that, it's hard to make that kind of sharp distinction. And when we do, you know, are we really looking at the theology of joy that comes from Scripture, or we're just taking English words and maybe making too strong of a category? Um, so, in the end, I did actually look up the word in English. I'll get over this part here in a minute, but I did look up the word in English, happiness and joy, and from Merriam-Webster, because these are our English words after all, right? Okay. Uh, Joy is defined in that dictionary as emotion evoked by well-being. The expression of such emotion is a state of happiness. Okay. The primary definition of the word happiness, when you go look that up, it's a state of well-being and contentment or joy. Okay. I'm saying they overlap in the range of meaning. So if you want to think of joy as happiness, I'll give you permission to do that. Because <laughs> I do. If not, that's fine. We can agree to disagree. However, I hope you agree on this part. And that is, establishing our theology of joy, we need to go to the Scripture and determine how it is used in the text of Scripture. What was actually said. And, in fact, the Scripture written here is written in Greek, so it's helpful to look at that word. That, that can help us grammatically. But even looking up the Greek definition in what we call a lexicon... That doesn't absolutely establish something. What establishes it is how it is being used. So if you used happiness as, oh, an external thing that just comes by chance, yeah, that's not what we're talking about, right? If that's how you use it. If you're using happiness as a disposition of gladness in your heart granted by Christ, then yes, it is. Hopefully I didn't lose you around the corner all of that. But let's go to this word in our text where Jesus says, my joy. The word is kara. There's a number of words both in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek for joy. But kara is, a, is, a, is one that is used um, quite often and derivatives of it is mostly used. 90% of the time in the New Testament... When this word for joy that you see here, 90% of the time it refers to an emotional state of gladness. 
The remaining times, it's used just to talk about the source, the source of such gladness. In the lexicon here, in the sense, in the sense of it, it means great emotion, or should I say, emotion of great happiness and pleasure. Now you see why we went through the happiness part, because it's in the lexicon for the word. But anyway, it, you get the idea. There, it's a, it's a sense of great emotion and happiness and pleasure, the opposite, which, which would be sorrow and loss. The source, of course, is something that causes, it's used in that way, causes cheer and dispels gloom. The word for joy, then, in the Bible is used to describe, and I think this is important, an emotion. An emotional state, a state of mind, of happiness and pleasure. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we may have different experiences of this emotion, different ways in which this emotion is expressed, but it will be produced in the life of the believer. That's what I'm arguing. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It needs to be a part of your life. It is a disposition that is going to result in contentment. It's a disposition that's going to result in a gladness of heart. The circumstances of life that might somehow bring about sorrow, loss, Difficulty for the believer then can be, as James would put it, what? Counted all joy? Yeah, all pleasure. Now, according to cancer, isn't pleasurable. <laughs> and I was so delighted to hear your response about it this morning. I, got, I don't remember, I recall you telling me that before, how you immediately responded in a degree of peace and joy. Gladness of heart. You would think that, okay, he would just drop the phone, go ball somewhere, and crawl under something and need to have some sort of drugs or therapy. But in Christ, I, I can assure you that you can, even given some of the most difficult experiences of life, Oh, well, that's not fun, and taking chemo is not fun, getting cut on isn't fun, or suffering the kinds of pains and consequences. That you're, that, none of that's fun, but you can consider it, that is, count it, all joy, because you know that God the Father has a purpose for everything, and that it will produce greater fruit in your life. It will produce steadfastness that you may be perfect in the sense of being coming mature, completed, and lacking nothing. It isn't by happenstance that anything happens. There is no such thing as chance. God the Father is, as the creed says, almighty. He is sovereign God. There is nothing that is going to happen outside of his control. And therefore, through those that are in Christ, they can have a gladness of heart 
that isn't directly connected to the circumstance, and even to the degree it might be, you know, oh, well, God has a purpose on this. I'd rather not have this pain. Sure. Don't wish it on anybody else, but he will give his grace is sufficient for me. Jesus prays for his disciples to have this fullness of joy, his joy. And again, it causes me to think about it in my own life this week as I wrestle through this text. I really need to be more joyful. But, and have a gladness of heart. A disposition that expresses itself a bit more often. And that brought me to my second question. Well, how can this be facilitated in my life? Okay. If Christ promises this great joy, prays for it in the behalf of his disciples, a great gladness of heart that will transcend whatever circumstances, is there anything that I can do about it or do I just hang out and allow that to happen? Well, I think there are some things that you certainly can do. Salvation, we would say, is monergistic. It's what God does. Sanctification in the sense of glorification, again, is his work. But sanctification, that is becoming more like Christ, in this world, in this life, and that's what we're speaking about, because we're in his presence, fullness of joy. Right now, we need to be filled with his joy. So we call this process, also we term it sanctification, that is growing in Christ, right? Moving along, that is synergistic. And that is the new nature in Christ, not the flesh, but your new nature cooperates with God on this sanctification in your life. It is ultimately God's power and grace that accomplishes it, but you are engaged in it. You can overcome sin, right? It is you put you put to death the deeds in the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Okay? So that's the idea of this cooperating in your sanctification. And I'm calling the church to be mindful of cooperating in this idea of bringing about fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, and specifically this aspect of it, joy in your life. Now, if we think about this, I guess off the top of my head, we could come up with all kinds of ideas, and maybe I can give you a list of a couple of dozen things. It might be good. It might be good for you to think about and see how that connects to Scripture. But given our time, I really just want to focus on three that Christ gave to his disciples during his farewell address. Not saying this is all there is. I'm just trying to simplify it. If your goal like mine was, hmm, I want more joy of the Holy Spirit expressed in my life, right? I want to be, I want to be more, jo- more joyful. I want to have Christ's joy in my life. Uh, what, what interaction do I need to do? Well, I'm going to take these three things, and again, this isn't comprehensive, 
but this might be helpful. And you let me know if you implement this in your life, if you're level of joy measure, if you will, if it goes up at all. I encourage you to consider. We're going to take it from the farewell discourse that we've been studying that culminates here in the high priestly prayer, and we'll, we'll just go backwards. Because this idea of joy, as we mentioned at the very beginning about Christ's farewell address to his disciples, he repeats the same thing over and over and over and over because they need to hear about it, then they need to hear about it, and then they need to hear about it because we can be so forgetful. So in his teaching, he teaches them over and over. So there's three key places in which he talks about joy specifically, and one of them is right here in our text. In verse 13, he culminates all of this teaching concerning joy to his disciples as the phrase, these things. He's taught them what? These things. What, what are the these things that Christ has taught them? It refers to all of Jesus' teaching. Obviously, immediately, it is the teaching that he gave them in this farewell discourse. But beyond that, in the three-year ministry, right, that he had been teaching his disciples all along the way, He taught them what? His word. Christ taught them to the word of God. It is, by the way, the very words of Christ that bring about faith. Romans 10, 17. In our text here, at verse 17 in chapter 17, right? It is this sanctification is going to, that when I talked about, it comes about by how? Same way. The Word. Sanctify them by thy truth. What's truth? Thy Word is truth. There's a lot of lies out there. A lot of misinformation. And if you're not sure, just go turn on cable news this afternoon and you'll get plenty of it. Oh, there's some truth mixed in. As Gordon mentioned, sorry to pick on you, Gordon, about Greek philosophers. They can have correct information from time to time. Doesn't mean they have the right theology, but they make great, make good statements, and so do people. But the the the, the difference and the distinction is every bit of this is absolutely true. You have no other writing that parallels this. There's nothing else that we have that is the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because it is God's holy word. It's a unique resource. And so you want to be sanctified. That is, you want to be more like Christ. You want to have, and we're focusing on one aspect today, right? Joy. You want to have his joy in your heart? You know where it comes from, don't you? Right here. What do you think the devil would do so much to keep you out of it? to twist it and have false teachers, even from the beginning when these apostles started, that would take this very truth and twist it to their own means, their own ends. Still goes on, even this day. Because this is the truth, the whole truth, and certainly nothing but the truth. 
when Christ talks about his, his word and these things, we do also understand it's not just what he taught them on the farewell address. It isn't just what he taught them on their three-year ministry, in his three-year ministry. These things, his word refers to all of it. You know how it starts? In the beginning, God created. That's where it starts. And even that speaks of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. You know, you can make that connection to Christ from the very beginning and all the way through it. Even the Mosaic Code, which seems strange to us, and certainly it was written for a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. And what's the reason? It pointed to Christ. The only true vine, the only true son, the only one that fulfilled all the righteous commands, that it is Christ. It is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Jesus would tell his detractors, if you remember in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. It goes on in verse 46 of chapter 5. If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. It is no wonder why under demonic influence... Liberals were first attacked the very beginning. They want to jettison the Pentateuch because they don't want Christ. That's why. They don't have a problem with what it says. They have a problem with Christ. Because it speaks of Christ. Postmodernists today want to unhitch, if you will, the Old Testament from the New, making it somehow irrelevant because they've crafted an idol in their own image. And guess what? It's not Christ. This speaks of Christ. And all of it is profitable. All of it has been. Don't take my word for it. Take the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling his young protege, Timothy, in his farewell address, if you will, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want joy, you will find it in the Holy Scriptures. In times of great difficulty and travail, his, his word is the source of joy. Jeremiah expresses it this way in time of great difficulty. 
weeping prophet because the land was being destroyed because of the rebellion and sin. He had the answer, repent and believe, and they didn't want to hear him. They closed their ears, much like today. And in great forbearance, he, he prays for God not to, to take him away. And he says this in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me joy and delight in my heart. For I am called by your name. That's just one of the few truths that you're going to find there. Everyone was against Jeremiah. No one wanted to come and hear him preach. They wanted to kill him. And what gave him joy and delight in his heart in the midst of that circumstance? He recognized that I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Are you a Christian? Are you called by the name of Christ? Does any other name matter? (laughs) Read the scripture about how Christ thinks of you. Paul would tell the church at Colossae that you are holy, beloved, and chosen. Chosen by God. I'll take that one. Oh, because I've merited it? No, it's because I will display my glory in taking somebody like that. Holy in that you're made right, perfect before God, but holy also means to be sanctified, if you will, to be separated. Like China in a cabinet, back when they used to have that stuff. You put your special stuff in a special display case, only took it out for specific purposes. That's the imagery. And beloved, well, we can go all day on that. Loved by the Father like the Father loves Christ. Can I help you out? If you were to just meditate on that one passage, Colossians 3.12, and think about those aspects. And if you're regenerate, if you have a new heart in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, I think it would be hard not to be joyful. One of the hardest parts of me in getting through a sermon, yeah, there's in studying for it, preparing. There's a perfunctory part I've got to read, I've got to grab notes, I've got to do all this. But I guarantee you, every time, at, some, at various points, and I, and I like to space this out throughout the week, I am overcome with joy. Because it hits me. Because I've been spending time in it. And I want to thank you for making me do it. It's one of the most blessed experiences you could ever have. And oftentimes, I would just absolutely break down weeping. 
Not in sadness, but in tears of joy. I can't believe that I'm holy, beloved, and chosen in God. I can't believe the, the maker of heaven and earth would, would want to even have me grace his presence, let alone come boldly before his throne. No wonder the psalmist writes page after page, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies, they're the, the joy of my heart. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure. And I don't want to put you on a guilt trip, but if, you're, if, if, it, if it tastes like gravel and not honey to you, there's something wrong with your heart. You might not be regenerate. So examine yourself. Always would say that. But if you are, if you love Christ and you have a hard time engaging in his word, you can do this next step that we're going to get to. And that's found in 16, and we'll begin at verse 20. And that is pray. Okay, you can read God's word. And by the way, there's various ways to do it. My father hated to read. He did not graduate from high school. He wasn't a good reader. But you know what he would do? He'd get a pair of earphones on and get an audio Bible and sit there and listen to it and he would look at it as well. He wasn't a good reader, but he's a good listener. I'm not going to give you all the tips on how to hide God's Word in your heart. You can listen to it. You can read it. You can meditate on it. You can memorize it. You know. But the bottom line is no that is a source to facilitate joy so if you don't have a lot of joy in your life if you're hungry for joy eat his word secondly let's go with praying that's the second in his farewell discourse it is prayer that will bring about joy look at verse 20 of chapter 16 we're going backwards because he's taught on this before We've already forgot it. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 20 of chapter 16, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. No sugarcoating. There's going to be sorrow. When we talk about joy, we're not talking about walking around with this big smile on your face as if nothing ever happens. No, you're going to have some difficult times. But in the midst of it, you will have joy, gladness. And those that I convinced early, ha earlier, happiness. Look at the illustration that he gives to help you re remind you of what this might look like. In this case, he chooses the, the um, act of childbirth. Verse 21 is a good illustration. When a woman's given birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the what? For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
It's the same concept. What I'm saying is there is a gladness of heart. It may have been painful. It may be sorrowful aspects. There may be all kinds of things. But the, you know what? There is a certain joy. And you know what? This is beyond just a mental agreement of joy. This is a, a, a deep emotional response. And that's what Jesus is talking about. A deep emotional response of great pleasure of great joy, of great happiness, if you will. Look at verse 22. That's what this illustration is about. You saw her now, but I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and then no one will take it from you. If you remember my sermon from this text, this, I won't get into all of it, but you can go back in the archives and look at it, but he says, I will see you again. That's where it is. You're going to have sorrow now, but I will see. Jesus is going away. How is he going to see him? He's not talking about the end of the age. This is for now. He's going to see them in the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's called for. I'll see you. I'll see you in the sending of the Spirit. This is in this life. Jesus will be with them in the giving of the Holy Spirit, which will dwell in them forever and never leave and constantly produce the fruit of the Spirit. And one aspect of that, as we've already learned, is what? Joy. No one's going to take your joy from you. No one can take it because it's not sourced in the circumstances. It's sourced in Christ. It's not sourced in people. It's not sourced in problems. It's sourced in Christ. But I say this is about prayer here, primarily. Notice how he focuses on that in verse 23. All right. In that day you ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Do you see this? That your what? Your joy may be full. You have full joy? You want Christ's joy filled in you? Here's an idea. Pray about it. Ask. They were asking Christ many things, but, but now they're going to ask the Father. And what will be included in the prayer to the Father, it will be, in the name of Christ, I pray that I would have a fullness of joy. Try it. You want joy in your life? Pray. Pray that your joy would be full. It is through the sacrifice of Christ that we've been granted access into the throne of grace. Now our great high priest has brought us in by his blood that we can come boldly before him. And you may find yourself unable to express what you really need. You may be, feel like a child who just stumbles in and stutters a bit and can't quite articulate what they, what they want, it's okay. Christ has given you the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul told the church at Rome. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You can pray and ask for joy. You can ask for the Holy Spirit to intercede on your behalf. You can have truly this prayer answered in your life because your high priest, Jesus Christ, is praying it for you, that your life would be joyful. I'm going to give you one more, and I'll finish with that. Again, this isn't meant to be comprehensive, just to kind of go along with Jesus' teaching in this discourse. We have first, you enjoy finding his word, prayer, and third is obedience. You'll find that in John 15. And we'll just look at verse 7. We've been through John 15 before, vine and the branches. But note this here. In 15 verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you and ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Interesting, this is the beginning of it and he includes those two elements that I just talked about. You see it there? Pray, abide in his word. By this my Father is glorified that you would do what? Bear much fruit and then so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And note this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The, 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 the expression of obedience then to his will is a, an example of this. These things I've spoken to you. Similar phraseologies we've already read, isn't it? I spoke these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here the context is obedience to Christ. May I suggest to you that one of the reasons that people are so afflicted with sorrow and a lack of joy is a lack of obedience to Christ. You can't be in rebellion against his commandments, against his word, and be joyful. It's going, it's going to bring out a state of sadness and sorrow. If you're a child of God, you're not going to have joy while you're in rebellion against him. Abiding in him and in his word is expressed in obeying his word. There's great joy in answered prayer. You go to him, you pray, and you have your prayers answered. But can I tell you this? Regard iniquity in your heart, and the Lord's not going to hear it, right? You confess your sin. He's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But answered prayer, as it's mentioned there in verse 7, will bring about great joy, won't it? You ask, and you receive, 
And that source granting you answers to your prayer is of great joy. And you will then bear the fruit of joy. But notice verse 8. It isn't just fruit. It is much fruit. And here I'd like to go through Psalm 1. I just encourage you to go meditate on it. You may be familiar with it. The one who is blessed, and by the way, in Hebrew, Ashrei, it is similar to this kara in Greek. It, it means joy. In context, it's used of that, those that are righteous, but nevertheless, it, there is a, a blessing, a certain joy, the blessed man, if you will, in Psalm 1. It begins by telling what he doesn't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, he is obedient to God's word. But beyond that, the second aspect, he delights in his word day and night. He meditates in it. And the analogy, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bears fruit when? In his season. And whatever he does prospers. Very much fruit. Obedience will bring that about in your life. Obedience will bring about, obedience to his word will bring about joy. And one of the joy is it'll prove, verse 8 of our text, it'll, you'll prove to be his disciple. If you have a, an internal desire to obey God's word, not external based on peer pressure or conformity to whatever, but if there's something in your heart that says, you know, I, Jesus is Lord, I want to obey his will, you know what that does? It helps in your assurance of salvation, which brings about joy. Verse 9, it is all based on love. Abide in my love, he says. Love is the motivation for obedience. It's not legalism. So we don't write a list out and say, you've got to do this, that, and other thing, and therefore, no, not at all. It is about love, bringing about a state of blessing. James described this as one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, being no hearer only, but, and who forgets, but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing. The joy of Christ, I said, is a cheerful disposition of heart that transcends the circumstances of life. It will bring about contentment no matter what. It will also bring out a spirit of gladness. And to facilitate in doing so, pick this up. And have a meal or two. Do so with prayer to begin, during, and end. And the precepts that are here, follow it based in your love for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for myself and your people that our joy would be increased. We are not, never going to express it to the degree that Christ would in the joy that was always before him. But I pray that we would have a taste of your glory here. 
a taste so much and so great that your people would have a greater disposition of, of joy. I pray that I would have a greater disposition of joy as an overflow of the Spirit working in our life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you take a moment now to think on these things. Take a moment now.